your mercy despite our sin, and that you make us wise for salvation in Christ, by this same word that testifies to him. So Lord, we pray that as we sit under your word now, you would grow us in wisdom as those whom you have redeemed in your Son, to live, to walk, and to delight in him. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. One of the advantages of uh, growing up on the south coast of England, uh, like uh, I had the fortune of doing in my early years, is that when you have a free weekend, you have the odd day off, you can get onto the Eurostar train and take a short trip down to France, to northern France at least. Uh, They built the Channel Tunnel quite a few years ago now, so you can even go in your car onto a train that will transport your car with yourself in it down to France so you can enjoy a nice few days in northern France if you want to. Uh, It's something that us Brits, we love to do. Um, Certain items can be quite a bit cheaper Uh, especially with the duty-free, the weather is usually that much warmer and the food is that much more enjoyable. Uh, You could say we do have our own version of the Singaporean visiting Malaysia very often have it. So on one fine summer's day many years ago, my friend John took a trip to France on the train. He had a lovely time. He stocked up on uh, certain beverages that are quite common for British people to do. Uh, Yeah, some of you know about that. And then he made his way back to the train terminal. And as he was waiting in his car, waiting to board onto the train to go back, uh, back to the UK, two rather large, well-armed and intimidating security officers approached his vehicle. And the larger one walked down the uh, driver's side, uh, leant down, and rather than knocking on the window, uh, on John's window, he decided to take the butt of his machine gun and tap quite violently in a very intimidating way. Now, unfortunately, John, my friend, he is quite the sensitive type. Uh, he gets offended uh, very easily. He has a bit of a short fuse that can get him to a lot of trouble at times. And he didn't appreciate the way these officers were conducting themselves toward him. So he decided to be very uncooperative. He complained about their conduct. When they asked him questions, he would be um, very difficult. He's just suggested, why don't you just move on to the Mercedes in front of me, because clearly they're a drug dealer and I'm just fine. Wasn't a good idea. John hadn't realised the kind of trouble that these security guards could inflict on him if they wanted to, and that's exactly what they did. They reminded him of their authority over him when they insisted at gunpoint that he drive into this little garage, the shady area by the entrance to the train uh, and then start to unpack his vehicle before their eyes while they watched him. So they could carry out, of course, a thorough inspection to make sure he wasn't smuggling anything. You know, John spent many more hours in the uh, at border control in northern France than he had planned to. In fact, he actually came pretty close to being arrested and thrown into jail that night, all for being a bit cheeky and disrespectful to authority. He wasn't wise, was he, with the way he related to those who were in a superior position to him. They certainly weren't pleasant people, those in authority, those security guards, they were pretty rough, arrogant and harsh with my friends, but John was the one who suffered in the end. He lost his call, and he paid for it. We live in a brutal world, 
full of harsh authorities and of great injustice. That's a theme that runs through our verses in Ecclesiastes 8 tonight, that we live in a brutal world. And wisdom can be a great aid to living well in a brutal world. So the preacher starts in 8 verse 1, come with me to 8 verse 1, and he starts by saying, who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? Last week in chapter 7 we were reminded by the preacher that perfect wisdom is elusive. No one can be perfectly wise. But he still sees an advantage to the person living in this world with some wisdom. See what he continues to say in verse 1. A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. In other words, the one who is wise will be able to better cope with the realities of this brutal world in which we live, even to the point that it will actually be evident on their face, in their outward expression. As they look on life, they will smile more than they frown. So in this chapter, the preacher seeks to share with us his wisdom on how to get by in a brutal world. Now, he's still speaking as one who is living under the sun, that theme we've seen from the beginning of Ecclesiastes. His wisdom is drawn simply from observing how this life works. And we have his first observation in verse 9. This is his wisdom on the basis of observing life in this brutal world, if this life is all there is. Have a look in verse 9. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Man had power over man to his hurt. Sure, none of us can relate to that, can we? My friend John certainly could. He's being threatened by those guards at border control for so many hours. Imagine we certainly can relate to the times when our superiors, our bosses, even our parents have been harsh with us. So here's what the preacher has to say about living wisely under the reality of harsh authorities in a brutal world. Living wisely under authority. We'll start at verse 2. The preacher says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Keep the king's command. The preacher says, you want to live wisely under authority in this brutal life? Well, then the key word is obey. That's the default mode for us. Gives us the example of this king who has ultimate control over his subjects. It was a very common thing in the preacher's day. Uh, for that, for the way, um, for society to work that way, to be living under a sovereign human power. Some rulers were good, some they were not so good. And yet the preacher, he doesn't care about the moral character of the king here. The only thing he's concerned with is the king's authority. His absolute authority over his subjects and how that can bear down on them as he addresses his readers. So he continues in verse 3. This is the wisdom of living under a sovereign human authority. Be not hasty to go from his presence. In other words, don't disrespect him publicly. Uh, Make sure you're in his presence when he wants you there for as long as he wants you there and no longer. 
we'll read later in Ecclesiastes 10, verse 4. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offences to rest. You see, there's much wisdom in not storming off in anger, in a huff, before those in great authority because they've upset us in some way. In verse 3b, we continue, do not take your stand in an evil cause. Evil cause here being basically anything that goes against the king's command. To take your stand in an evil cause was to basically disagree with what he was telling you to do. An evil cause was your opinion over and against his opinion. Don't take your stand. Don't insist on your way before this kind of authority. Why? (laughs) The preacher's answer is really simple, tragically straightforward. Because the king's the boss, and you're not. Verse 3b, for he does whatever he pleases. Verse 4, the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Can't second guess a king. One of his subjects, they may well be brighter, wiser, more strategic in their planning, but it doesn't matter. Because the king is in charge. His words count. So wisdom, from observing the way life works under the sun, says, wherever possible, obey. Just fall in line and stay out of harm's way. Verse 5, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And yet before we think that the preacher is actually uh, promoting blind obedience here, just doing whatever you're told to do by your superiors, whenever they say, however they say, every day. Just take a look at the end of verse 5. See what he adds. The wise heart will know the proper time and the just way, for there is a time and a way for everything. We saw that kind of wisdom earlier in uh, chapter 3, the preacher speaking how there is a time for everything under the sun. There is a time for everything in the seasons of this life. Chapter 3, verse 7, there is a time to keep silence and there is a time to speak. The wise in heart will know how to address a senior authority in a way that does not lead to them getting in serious trouble. They will know the proper time, the just way. Rather than storming out of the ruler's presence or arguing with them incessantly in front of their other subjects, accusing them of wrongdoing, calling them an idiot, behaviour that's only going to get the king angry with you. No, the wise will speak at an appropriate time. Maybe sometime after the command has been given. After the king has had time to reflect. And in an appropriate way, in a manner that is becoming and respectful. Not in a manner that is arrogant. But it certainly wasn't easy living under this kind of power in the preacher's day. See what he says at the end of verse 6. Man's trouble lies heavy on him. This kind of life weighs you down. And so the preacher wants his readers to bear two things in mind as he continues to speak about how to live under authority and particularly when it comes to weighing up whether we should obey authority or not. Two things to consider when it comes to obeying the authorities that we are under. Firstly, verse 7, he does not know what is to be, who can tell him how it will be? Friends, it's, it's just true, isn't it, that we don't know the end 
of any matter perfectly before it actually happens. Including where a king or a boss or even a parent might tell us to obey. You know, this is Solomon, or at least many think Solomon is writing here. It might just be that he is also recalling a similar incident in his own reign when saying this. When he was faced with the dilemma, for those who know the story from the Old Testament scriptures, when two women come to him complaining that this single child that they bring to the king is actually belongs to them. And so what does Solomon do in his wisdom? He orders his servants, the ones under him, to take a sword and to slice the child in half. Can you imagine how the servants felt at that stage? They thought, "Ah, looks like the king's forgotten to take his pills again this morning. You can just imagine the PR agent around the corner thinking, how on earth are we going to get out of this one? But they couldn't see the end of the matter how things would really work out, this seemingly foolish and stupid decision. You want to kill the baby in front of them? And yet they could not see how Solomon in his wisdom knew that the true mother would rather see her beloved child go to someone else than be killed before her very eyes. And so when the sword is put to the child, she cries out. And Solomon knows instinctively that is the mother of the child. That is the one who truly cares for this baby. So often it's hard to see the end of a matter, isn't it? Even when your boss seems to make a foolish decision, well, the preacher says better to obey than disobey and then look like a fool in the end when you're proven wrong. But the second point he has to make as we weigh up the decision of whether to obey authority or not is even more serious. He wants his readers to count the ultimate cost of relating to the king in an unwise way. Have a look in verse 8. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. He reminds us of what he has reminded us us of earlier in, in this book, that none of us have the power to prevent our own death. We do not control that. But for those who were in the king's service, he certainly had the power to put his subjects to death if they displeased him. If they were a soldier in the army, as the preacher mentions here, well, there's no discharge from war. If you fail to do your duty in honour of the king, if you abandon your post, then you would face the consequences. And most probably that would be your death. Now, rebelling against the king in an unwise way doesn't bring deliverance. It brings great sorrow and even the end of our days. The preacher basically says, count the cost. Count the cost of going against authority. Rebelling against the king, well, you could be shown to be a fool, but far worse, you could die. Rebelling against our boss at work, well, that could lead to us being fired, losing our income, defaulting on our mortgages, having our family thrown out on the street. Rebelling against the local authorities, well, that could lead to a fine in the nicest of cases, but more seriously, jail jail time, or in the very worst crimes, death itself. So the preacher says, count the cost. Count the cost. Be wise in the way in which you relate to authority that you are under. 
wherever possible, as far as the preacher is concerned, obey. Do what you're told and stay out of trouble. But friends, you've got to remember the situation of the preacher here. His wisdom is based purely on his observations of life under the sun. As if this life basically is all that we can be certain of. Much of what he says is very wise, but its scope is very limited. It's limited to what we can see and understand from the way this world works. And yet we have the privilege as Christians of understanding more than the preacher could hear. Not because we're any wiser, not because we're that much more insightful, but because God in his mercy, as we were reminded of in our New Testament reading, has made his wisdom ultimately known in Christ and the cross. Jesus is the wisdom of God himself come to dwell with us. In him we don't see the limited wisdom of one man making observations from the way this life works. In him we see the wisdom of God who brought life about who sustains all things, who knows all things, who plans all things. Let's look at the, what the preacher says here in the light of Christ and his cross. Now, Jesus experienced firsthand man's power over man to his hurt, didn't he? We can think of even in the earliest days of his childhood. He was born into a very difficult situation, Two years old, his family had to escape from a wicked king bent on destroying any boys that bore Jesus' identification. During his ministry, Jesus constantly faced threats from the religious authorities of his day because they wanted him dead. Because all of the crowds were now following him, his teaching, marveling at the signs he was doing that testified to the fact that he is the Messiah, God's promised saviour king for his people. So Jesus was very wise in the way he related to authority in his earthly ministry. Very wise along the lines of what the preacher promotes here. When the demons cried out, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, Jesus told them to shut up. You ever wonder why? Well, one of the reasons, I think, is because He knew wisely that if the word spread that he was this new king on the block, then the current Roman authorities would quickly swoop in and deal with this little insurrection. Because they wouldn't understand what it meant for Jesus to be king. They'll just see him as a rival to Caesar and they'd kill him. Jesus submitted to authorities in a wise way wherever he could. When the Pharisees challenged him whether they should pay taxes to Caesar or not, what was his reply? Well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But give to God what is God's. He wouldn't let them trick him to his own harm. And yet, his greatest concern was not safety in this life. That's very much where the the wisdom of the preacher is going, isn't it? How to be safe how to play it safe, how to protect yourself from harm. That wasn't Jesus' chief concern. No, his concern was to do the will of the Father who had sent him. So at one point in his ministry, rather than being careful to avoid hostility and bad consequences from the authorities he was under, 
to the amazement of his disciples, he takes a complete U-turn and he starts walking towards Jerusalem. Enemy HQ. Knowing it would lead him to being falsely tried and condemned by the authorities of his day who would nail him to a cruel cross all according to his father's plan. And having suffered so greatly, his father, in the vindication of his son, rose him from the dead as God's exalted saviour and king of us all. Well, now that we have, as God's people, been reconciled to the Heavenly Father through the work of his Son, we are to be wise and obedient as Christ was as members of his people. So, it's still true that we're we're not to be quick to fight or argue or to join in insubordinate behaviour as Christians. You know, whether it be against the local authorities arguing over tickets and fines or against our own boss at work. You know, as much as they love to believe, they are God over us sometimes. Andrew? No, he's not here. We're to submit to them. We're to honour our working contracts. We are to do this in faithfulness to Christ. We have a far greater and important reason to be at work on time. To be working hard when our boss is not looking, no matter how they happen to be treating us that day. Not to be clocking out early like all the rest of the team do. But in those rare occasions where our boss, where the authorities, even our parents call us to go against Jesus as our king, when they tell us, hey, you've got to come and join in the worship of ancestors today. You've got to lie. Your boss says you've got to lie for the sake of that big deal. Just don't tell them the truth. It'll be all right. You've got to give a bribe to keep that client happy, otherwise the whole thing's going to fall through will be ruined. Or when they restrict us from doing something that Christ explicitly commands us as our risen king. You can't go to church. You can't get baptised. You can't share the gospel in this workplace. Sorry, religion. No, not here. Or then like Jesus, as those who have been saved and have new life in him, we do the will of our Father in heaven. Where we must We respectfully disobey and we bear the cost willingly and humbly for doing so. That is part of what it means to live as Christ's disciples in a brutal and fallen world. To walk the path of suffering that he trod for us before we enjoy the glory that he won for us at the cross with him for eternity. Let's come to our second point. We're moving on from living wisely under authority now to the second observation that the preacher makes about living wisely in this brutal world and the wisdom he derives from it. Living wisely with injustice. The preacher observes several types of injustice in these verses. Start in verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. The preacher observes great injustice in life in this brutal world that we live in under the sun. The wicked escape justice 
for their crimes. That comes so slowly, so often. In fact, while they're alive, quite the opposite, they are praised for their outwardly righteous deeds in their hypocrisy of visiting the holy places, no doubt to pray, to offer all of the required sacrifices of the preacher's day, fulfill their tithes, do all their religious duty, but their hearts were far from God, had no real love or fear of him. Their piety was motivated not by a love for God, but by pride and greed, by a love of being seen as righteous in the eyes of others, the glory of man. The glory of man. I really hope none of us here at Smack come here for that reason, to be seen as righteous in the eyes of others and to be honoured for the sake of our own vain ambitions and selfish reputation. As for the wicked here, well, they are honoured by the locals. As they go in and out of the temple, they say their prayers, they seem to be righteous. Well, they're the ones that get the best seats in the restaurants. They're the ones that get the valet parking at the local inn. Even in death, they receive a burial, which is a sign of honour. Even to be buried in the preacher's day was a sign of honour. And they receive a fine one, this last badge of honour and respect. Al Capone, the famous gangster of Chicago, back in the 19th, 20th century, was a, a regular churchgoer. He said prayers in public. He also ran prostitution rings illegal gambling houses, racketeering schemes that left thousands impoverished. He also murdered, who knows how many more. And on the day of his death, he was placed in a $2,000 solid bronze casket at a funeral home. On the second day, thousands of flowers and baskets and wreaths and blankets arrived from all over the country. In fact, so many that the funeral home couldn't house all of the gifts that Al Capone and his family had received. By the third day, the papers in America were full of respectful comments from all kinds of powerful figures for Al and his family on the occasion of his demise. And here's a picture of Al Capone's grave today. You can clearly see it standing out from all the other smaller graves from the slightly less important and respected people. That's Al Capone's grave. So the preacher says, vanity. This is all vanity meaningless. The wicked are honoured. Even in death, they fail to face justice for their crimes. And yet, despite this painful observation that we can even see today, the preacher tries to give us some hope that somehow justice will be done in the end. You see what he says in verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. You see, the one small encouragement that the the preacher struggles to grasp and draw on is that he somehow believes and knows that God will put things right eventually. It will still be better for those who fear God rather than persist in their wickedness and seek to prolong their lives as a result. But you see how the preacher is just so limited here in his encouragement, in his argument. It will be better for those who fear God because they fear God. He can't say why. 
why it'll be better. We're, we're not told what the positive outcome will be. No, the preacher can't say because, again, he can't see past life under the sun. His wisdom is all being derived from what he can observe about this life and a hope in a God that might judge. All that remains outside of life under the sun, as far as the preacher can see, is the mystery of death. And that's the same for the wicked and for the righteous. The only positive thing he actually says in these verses concerning uh, the wicked is that their days won't be prolonged. They won't live forever. I mean, thank goodness we don't have an eternal Al Capone, Hitler, Stalin at our own name to the list. No, it'll still be better in the end for those who fear God somehow. But the preacher can't tell us why. Not a lot of confidence. So he just moves on to another injustice that he observes in this brutal world in verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. I remember many years ago going into a shop when I was back in the UK, a town called Brighton, maybe a few of us have been there. It's full of very strange shops, that city. And I was just looking for a pair of jeans, a new pair of jeans, and I found one, a very kind assistant helped me out, picked out the right pair, uh, and I paid for them. And just, about, just as I was about to leave, go out the door with my, with my, with my new trousers, uh, the shop assistant uh, stopped me. Uh, and he was one of these guys who was going through like a, a grunge hippie phase. He had like long hair, he probably smoked some weed the night before or something like that. And so he says to me in a very hippie way, Karma, dude. He just points at this little box, little coin box on the counter and just goes, Karma, Karma. And it took me a while to even understand what he meant. What do you mean Karma, Karma? And then I, then I worked it out. Oh... Karma, right. The idea that if you know I was generous with a tip, then somehow I'll be rewarded by it when I walk out the door. You know, I'll, I'll, suddenly a taxi will turn up when I want it to, or I'll find a five-pound note on the floor or something like that. Uh, but on the other hand, if I was typically British, in other words, I didn't give a tip, I was very stingy, I could expect really, really bad things to happen to me. I'd walk out the door and there'd be a brick there that I'd trip over and I'd break my leg and all the rest of it. You know, there'd be some great loss of fortune. You know, that shop assistant, he clearly hadn't read Ecclesiastes. He also clearly hadn't picked up a newspaper that day. You just see the truth of what the preacher is saying here. Basically, bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. We don't need God's word to tell us that. We can see that. Good things happen to bad people. We see it all the time. A close friend of mine was hospitalized a few weeks ago. And she's one of the nicest and most servant-hearted people I've ever met. Others I know, friends still, but not of such a noble character, and they haven't fallen sick for years. They're doing very well in life. And so the preacher's conclusion again is vanity. Meaningless. What's the point? The wicked prosper. The righteous suffer. What's the point? Just fear God, because somehow it'll turn out well in the end for those who do. It will, somehow. Well, how does God's wisdom to us again in Christ and at the cross help us with what the preacher says here? Well, Jesus, again, as one who also suffered under harsh authority, well, as these verses say, he is also one who experienced great injustice. 
in this brutal world. Actually, Jesus knew in a way that we never will what it means for a righteous one to suffer for the deeds of the wicked, to receive what the wicked deserve. He went to the cross at the hands of wicked men, the righteous, sinless Son of God. And yet we know that his death was far more than just a miscarriage of human justice. He went there also willingly to experience God's justice, his wrath, on our sin. As the preacher reminded us last week, none of us can say, I'm righteous. You know, plenty of ways in which we, as the wicked, have been hypocritical in our actions. Don't have to be as wicked as Al Capone to have been guilty of that. Seeking our own glory in the eyes of others, rather than loving God from a genuine heart. Being guilty of seeking our own vain ambition and conceit. All of us have failed to fear God rightly. We've sought our own glory, the love of self, over the love of him. I say that all, but all but one. All but one is guilty of that unrighteousness. Jesus Christ, the one who, though righteous, gave himself for we who are wicked, who received what we as the wicked deserve. Because God does care greatly about justice in his world, and we see that at the cross more than anywhere else. The cross is his demonstration that sin must be paid for, that he will not permit injustice. And yet in his great mercy through that same cross, God has given us a rescue from the justice that we deserve for our sins by punishing his son in our place for what we deserve. God, as it were, taking on the punishment that we deserved from him on himself in the person of his son. Well, he's done that by the cross, that we might have the hope of not facing real justice one day, though we deserve it, because Christ has taken it for us as we trust in him. But for those who refuse to take refuge in him, to take refuge in the Saviour and King that God has granted to us in his Son, well, then we will face God's justice for the wickedness we have committed in this life one day. Al Capone and us and everyone else. God has given proof of that by raising his son from the dead. What we see three days later. Just listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in Acts uh, 17. What he speaks, I should say in Acts 17, recorded for us. The times of ignorance God overlooked, is verses 30 to 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn from sin, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in the righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So friends, because of Christ, we can be sure that as the preacher said, it is truly better for those who fear God in the end, as opposed to the wicked that seek to prolong their life in wickedness. We know because of the cross and the resurrection that God will right every wrong. He will punish every evil on the day of his son's return. He is a God of justice. It is only in his patient mercy that he has not brought justice against this world yet. 
No one has escaped justice through death. Rather, death leads to the judgment of God. So friends, again, please be sure that you are fearing God. You are the God-fearer in this passage today by taking refuge in the Son, by trusting in Christ for your salvation, not yourself, by living with him as your Saviour and your Lord, because for those who do not take refuge in him and the rescue that he has won for us, well then we will face that judgment along with the rest of humanity who refuse Christ, who will, in God's justice, have to pay for the sins that we have committed. And the terrible price of that is hell. Eternal separation from his goodness and love, from every good thing we've ever known. What about life now? It's all very well saying that God will bring justice at the end of the age, something we have to look forward to. But what about now? What about tomorrow? What when we, while we wait for that final day, what hope do we have as we see injustice in the world? How do we live with it? I'll have a look in verse 15 of the, preacher, the preacher's advice. The preacher says, in the light of the injustice that we witness, I commend joy. For man has nothing better but under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. You know, the preacher, he's, he's forced us to be real about the nature of this fallen world. About the injustice that we will face and live with under the sun. The good will receive bad and the bad receive good. Karma is a lie. But he doesn't want us to be overly burdened by that fact, to loathe life itself because it can be so unfair at times. You know, like the, I don't know, I think they're quite popular in the UK, certainly in Australia as well. You see these guys, they buy into the kind of the goth subculture. They'll, you know, wear black, they'll look very down. They just see life as a continual misery day after day. If you don't know what a goth is like, just think of a moody teenager syndrome on steroids, basically. That's, that's what it's like. Well, that's not a wise way to live in the face of injustice, friends. Instead, the preacher says, rejoice. Rejoice in the good gifts that God has granted. Of course, again, his wisdom is restricted to what he can observe about this world. So what he tells us to rejoice in is God's good temporary gifts. Food, drink, I commend joy in these things. And yet, we as Christians are privileged to know that we have so much more than even the transient gifts of this world. It's right that we enjoy food and drink and pleasure. It's not an ungodly thing to do that in the right way. But for those who are in Christ, we also know we've been granted something far greater, something which is everlasting, not temporary, a great blessing from God, and that, of course, is forgiveness of sin and the promise of eternal life in his rest under the blessing of his son's rule. That's, that's far greater. That future we have to look forward to is far greater than any suffering and injustice that we have to endure now in the present. So the preacher says, continue to enjoy and rejoice in God's good gifts. And brothers and sisters, that means for us, rejoice in the gospel, even in the midst of injustice. doesn't mean we won't care or be moved by the injustice we see in our world. 
doesn't mean it's not a good thing to promote justice in a godly way where we can in our circles of influence. In fact, the chief way we do that is by promoting the gospel. That is God's power to heal a broken world, to bring reconciliation, both between man and him and between men of different nations. But the preacher's point is don't despair at the fact that world peace isn't going to happen in this life. It's not. Not during the reign of sin before Christ comes. Don't despair when you or a loved one suffers great injustice. Don't despair of life itself. Of course we'll be sad. Of course we'll grieve. But don't despair of life. Because we remember that the one in whom we have life now suffered so much more greatly than we ever will. Keep your hearts and your minds focused on Christ. Don't let the pain of this life drown out your joy in him. That is greater by far. Even when it doesn't feel like it, even when you're in the midst of suffering, remember the gospel. Remember how amazing it is and how it far outweighs anything we would experience in this life. When our final point, the preacher reflects on the use of this wisdom that he's gained by observing the way life works under the sun to make sense of life, to make sense of this brutal world, and to living wisely with the unknown. Have a look in verse 16. This is his conclusion. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. The preacher's failed, basically. He's failed to understand life under the sun by his own observations of life under the sun. And that's exactly how God intended it. No matter how hard we try, even as Christians, no matter how hard you work to understand this life on the basis of your own observations of what's going on in your life, you will never, ever fully comprehend why what is happening to you is happening to you. We don't know why we're oppressed by harsh authorities, whether that be in the form of the local authorities, or our parents, or... Uh, our boss at work, at certain times and at other times we seem to have more freedom. Things seem to go more uh, more easily. Uh, we don't know why some of us lose, lose loved ones at an early age and others don't. I don't know why I lost my father to cancer when I was nine years old. I don't know why. God humbles us by that truth. That he alone can see the end of all things. And we, as his creatures, cannot. As Paul says in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgment! How inscrutable are his ways! Friends, we're going to face perplexing times. We already have and we will continue to. We're going to wonder why God is doing what he's doing in our life from time to time. We're going to cry out to him and say, What are you doing? Do you have any idea what I'm going through? Do you have any idea how I feel? But friends, the confidence that we can have in those kind of times, we draw from the cross. 
Because it is at the cross that we know that God is in the business of using terrible circumstances to bring about the very greatest good. He saved us through the tragic death of his one and only son given for us, who endured hell on our behalf. And we now have that promise as his people redeemed by the blood of his son that he is working in all things for our good. And that good is that we are conformed more into the likeness of Christ. And that will mean suffering as well as peace and joy. Well, God expects us to trust him in those times. Having mercifully loved us through the horror and the glory of the cross, He will never abandon or forsake his people. We have every reason to trust him in the perplexing times. So that is what we are to do. We are to trust God in his faithfulness and rest in his perfect will. How do we live wisely in this brutal world, as we conclude, as God's people? Well, friends, as those who have been made wise for salvation in Christ, we live our lives in reflection of him, in the light of his work, in the light of who he is and who we are in him. We do that by obeying the authorities that he has placed us under wherever possible, unless it means disobeying him as our true king. It means facing injustice, but as we do so, we rejoice in the gospel knowing that in Christ we have that promise that God will right every wrong in the end by the Son whom he has raised. We live wisely in Christ by trusting God in all circumstances, as hard and painful as that is at times. Remembering his perfect, unchanging love and mercy that he has demonstrated to us at the cross and knowing from that that he is working in all things for our ultimate good in the good times and the bad times. Friends, we need to ask God to humble us by his wisdom. It's not something that will come naturally to us. We need to ask him to humble us as we go back out into that brutal world in this coming week that we will be living lives worthy of Christ and have our joy and our hope set in him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would humble our hearts in the light of the wisdom that you have in your mercy made possible for us, having saved us by your Son, the righteous one given for us who are wicked that we might escape your fair justice on sin and have the promise of life with you now that will stretch way past this life into all eternity. Lord, as those who you have redeemed, you have bought by your Son, humble us that we would live wisely in this brutal world, in this coming week, We would be living lives worthy of the gospel. We would be living holy lives, faithful to Christ as your people. Grant us wisdom in these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.